have uh, chosen as my text this morning a passage, a verse from Nehemiah chapter 9, which reads as follows. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And this verse is in the context of the greatest covenant renewal celebration that's recorded in the Old Testament. In fact, it's the final one. It happens at the end of the unfolding story of the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Chapters 8 through 10 describes this renewal of the covenant, and it emphasizes meetings of the people with their leaders in which the the law was read and explained and applied in a context of worship. The Jewish people count this passage as the beginning of what became the synagogue movement. That was local meetings of people for the exposition of scripture and worship. And Jesus himself, we are told, had as his custom the weekly meeting of the synagogue in his city on the Sabbath. And because of that, we'd have to say this passage is also the foundation of the meetings of the church. It informs what we do this morning when we meet together because the early synagogues of the Jewish people were what formed the first churches. So it's a very significant passage. And before we look at it, I'd like to, to pray and ask for God's wisdom. Our gracious God, as we come to you again, we thank you that you are able to lead and guide us as you have in the past. And as this passage demonstrates, you have led and guided your people through the generations. And so we ask that you would open our minds to understand this passage particularly and to see its significance for us and to us and our condition now and what we are doing today. We pray that you would open our minds to understand it and you would move our hearts to obey what we find there, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this might seem like kind of an odd text to pick to uh, speak on, but I want to note what I really want us to think about is the larger context in which this verse is found, and I've chosen this text for a number of reasons that are important to us as we begin our covenant life together as a church that has affirmed together a church covenant. One of the reasons I think this is a very significant text is that it describes the renewal of the Old Covenant in the context of three weeks that are described of study and worship and reflection. And it culminates in a magnificent prayer in chapter 9 that ends with this verse. And uh, our consideration of our church covenant has been done in the context of worship here as we've for the last 10 weeks thought about it and made application to ourselves, and as in the context of small group meetings of worship and prayer, people have considered the covenant, and that's the spirit I long for us to maintain as we affirm the covenant together and we move on. Another reason this passage is significant is that it describes the sealing of the covenant by the leaders of the people of Israel, namely the princes, the Levites, and the priests. And under the new covenant, in the new covenant community, we are said to all be kings and priests to our God. There is no special class of mediators between ourselves and God. So it seems good to me to seal this covenant together as a gathered congregation. And finally, the prayer of the Levites that precedes this text in verse 38 is just full of the free 
and sovereign and lavish grace of God. And I want us as a people to understand the massive foundation that we have for living out the church covenant. That the foundation of what we are doing today is not found in ourselves. It's not in our ability to keep the covenant. It's not even in the words of the covenant. The foundation is the inexhaustible grace of our covenant-keeping God. And that's what we want to think about. In this passage, starting in chapter 8, it appears that the people called upon their leaders. They asked the high priest, Ezra, to teach the law that had been neglected for generations. So these were the returned exiles who had been dispersed into the countries when the city was destroyed, and they had come back and rebuilt the temple and rebuilt uh, the walls of the city. And now they gathered and they asked Ezra to teach them. And so chapter 8 begins with the high priest, Ezra, on a platform in the midst of the a central square of the city in front of the temple. And he reads, along with other priests who are there, and explains the law. And as they listen to the law being explained to them, the, the people are struck by how much they have neglected it, how little they understand of what this relationship with God was meant to be that they had been given. And uh, after that day, the leaders continue to meet and to read the law and study it and think about it. And they discover something that they weren't aware of. They discover that the very month in which they were meeting, which in Hebrew is the month of Tishri, but it's the seventh month. For us, it would be October or November following a lunar calendar. That very month was designed and in the law was meant to be a celebration of a specific festival called the Feast of Booths. And... The leaders, as they're studying this, they say, we should call the people to do this. And so they call upon the whole population to come to the city of Jerusalem and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And they do this with a rich week of exposition of the law and worship and joyful feasting. And let me just explain what the Feast of Booths was. It's sometimes called the Feast of Tabernacles. But what they call a tabernacle or a booth was a shanty made out of the branches of trees. And the Feast of Booths had a twofold purpose. It was on one side to celebrate yearly the ingathering of the harvest. In an agricultural society, the end of the harvest season and bringing in all of the produce of the land was a very specific point. Uh, and a point of thanksgiving. And on the other hand, it was also to commemorate the fact that their forefathers, their ancestors, had lived in tents in the wilderness for 40 years before they came into the promised land. And so these two things got um, connected to each other in that when they celebrated the Harvest Festival, every family was supposed to come to Jerusalem, and they were to build a shanty out of the branches of trees. And and they were to build these little makeshift homes for eight days. They were to live in the city. And so they were to set these shanties up, uh, these temporary little homes on rooftops, in the public square, on the very streets of the city. And people were supposed to come and uh, save up for the event all year so that they could come and have a festival there. And everyone from babies in the arms of their mothers to old people who could barely walk were to feast and enjoy themselves for a week at the end of the harvest. And the passage tells us that this had not been done since the days of Joshua. That was a thousand years before this, almost. 
it seems that there were many things that they had neglected out of the law. And the regulations of Leviticus 23 that described the Feast of Booths came to them as somewhat of a discovery. And they decided, let's do this. And with a will, they decided to make it everything it was supposed to be. And in their context of seeing that they had neglected God, they added to it a practice that became a part of the Feast of Booths after that. And that was, it was also like a a massive uh, camp meeting for a week in which they studied the Bible together. We might picture it. It doesn't say it was in the morning, but it would seem most likely that they met as they had the first day of that month. With Ezra expounding the law, they met, and, and there was an exposition of the law. Passages were read, and then they were explained. We're said that the Levites went out among the people. That's the tribe that were to assist the priests, and they taught them. They explained to them the details of things that they didn't understand, and uh, they made it a uh, um, time of learning and worship and feasting and enjoyment of themselves themselves and after the conclusion of that joyous festival it seems that the leaders tacked on an extra day after the the eighth day the culmination of the feast of booths they stayed another day the 23rd day of the month and it is recorded as a day of confession and mourning for sin in fact chapter 9 starts now on the 24th day of this month the people of israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And that describes an attitude of deep sorrow that you, you would show in, in a point of, of great calamity, like the death of a young wife or, or a loss of territory in battle or something that was massively important and destructive to life. That's how they came to this. And you might think, well, how, why did so many people stay to confess their sins But what you read and what follows is not what you might think of as a mourning, moaning, groaning sense of we've sinned in all these ways and getting it out. It's really a presentation of sin only as a backdrop against which the lavish grace of God is placed. What happens is the Levites stand up and they begin to lead them in prayer. And they say in verse 4, Stand up and bless the Lord, your God, from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And then what follows is a prayer apparently prayed by the Levites. It might be that portions of it were prayed by different ones. It describes the leading individuals of the Levitical families at this point being in front, representative, and they lead the whole nation in prayer. And the prayer unfolds in this way. It begins the first 15 verses of the prayer with an acknowledgement that everything that they experience is founded on the grace of God. They say, you, Lord, in sovereign grace, chose Abraham and his descendants to be your people. You promised him this land in which we find ourselves now. And so you saved us from bondage in Egypt, provided for us as we wandered through the wilderness, and made us your holy nation at Mount Sinai and gave us your law. But it goes on to say our fathers rebelled against you even in the wilderness. They grumbled because they didn't have enough food. They decided they wanted to go back to Egypt. They did all of these things that showed that they weren't really relying upon you and experiencing your grace. But that, that's kind of the backdrop. 
But what you find is that that's used to place all these statements about God, like verse 17, in the middle of verse 17. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. All a direct quotation from Exodus 34. You did not forsake them. Verse 19, but you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. Verse 20, you gave your good spirit to instruct them, did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst, and on and on. In other words, despite their failures, the failures of their forefathers, despite all of that, God remained faithful, and he forgave us, and he chastened us, and he strengthened us, and you led us to the promised land, and you gave us this precious land and all the enjoyment of it that we hadn't earned. You see, the sin is presented as a background to, but God was faithful. Now, God's faithfulness doesn't mean that he didn't chasten them. He did that quite severely, but when they repented, he was willing to bring them back, and he kept on with them. And then it goes on. Uh, The next section says that even when we got into the land, the, the people sinned against you again and again, and they wouldn't follow you, and they followed other gods, and there were times when you let us suffer, and then when we repented, you you saved us from whatever it is we were suffering, but we kept on doing it. And finally, in the most severe act of mercy imaginable, God fulfilled what he'd promised he would do in the very beginning, If they sinned against him, he allowed them to be conquered, their holy city to be entirely decimated, every stone pulled down, every building burned. And he sent them into exile into the foreign nations around them. Now, the intention of doing that in the ancient world by dispossessing a group of people from their land and putting them in a number of different places in other lands was simply an attempt that usually worked of erasing their national identity. Most groups of people exiled into a foreign land over time are going to assimilate into the culture. They're going to intermarry with the other people, and their language and culture and religion will all be lost in the mass of wherever they are found at that point. And that's what was anticipated, but it didn't happen. Despite this severe discipline of his people in which he allowed them to be subjected to bondage in foreign nations and he took away from them the land that he had promised by covenant to Abraham. Despite that, it says, verse 31 of chapter 9, nevertheless, but you in your great mercies did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. And here's the point. In the covenant, Sin is swallowed up by the inexhaustible grace of God. In the covenant, God himself maintains his steadfast love. The word means his covenant faithfulness from his side. And it doesn't mean that he won't bring discipline, even quite severe discipline. It doesn't mean that whole generations may be lost, but he will always maintain his covenant promises to his people Those whom God has established in relationship with himself, he continues to work to shape and change and refine us. You know, last week after the congregational meeting, a a man uh, from the church wrote me an email. It was quite a lengthy email in which he had been thinking about the covenant which he had signed. And it, it was a very thoughtful email. And one of the things he wrote was, I'm afraid I'm going to make a commitment that I have every intention to fulfill, 
but have no realistic expectation to fulfill. In other words, what he was saying is, who could ever really say to God about the things that are written in our church covenant, I'm going to do this completely for the rest of my life. Well, when I finally, after having thought about it, wrote back to him, uh, I'm not sure I could satisfy his apprehension, but I, I told him that any covenant from the human side um, has to be only a statement of our intention. Because of sin, we're not going to be able to do everything that we intend, but every covenant requires grace to be fulfilled. For example, and I happen to have married this person 20 or more years ago to his wife, I, I said, when, when we get married, and I say it this morning, men, when we get married, we say certain things. We stand up in front of a group of people with our wives, and we say things like, I will make your welfare the chief concern of my life. I, I will love and care for you regardless of whatever personal sacrifice it costs me or requires of me. I will love, honor, and care for you with all that I am and all that I have and so forth. Now, I suppose there are people who, when they get married, they have an honest feeling that they're going to fulfill that. But if they've been married more than 24 hours, they've experienced already that <laughs> that's probably not going to happen quite in the way that the words are written. And men, of course, there are times when we don't sacrifice ourselves for our wife we don't make her welfare our chief concern in life because we've got other things that we think are more important to think about at that point. In fact, we will daily break them in thought, word, and deed, as it says in the Heidelberg Catechism, of our ability to keep the law. Can we keep the law? Of course not. No, we daily break the law in thought, word, and deed. And the same thing's true of marriage vows. But we have every intention of keeping them, even though we know in advance we won't do it perfectly, Nevertheless, we take those vows, and when we go to a wedding, at least this is my experience, I know many others, when we go to a wedding and we sit there beside our spouse, we think about those vows as people take them in front of us, as they recite them, we think about what they mean. I remember my youngest daughter's wedding, my parents, who are now long gone, sat right there in the front row and held hands. I watched them hold hands while the vows were being said because I was leading the service. And, and you know, that's a common experience in life. We, we think about what it is we did, did, what we meant, excuse me, and we recommit ourselves to do that. But the fact is the marriage covenant requires grace. Thankfully, because two sinners get married, the grace has to happen on both sides, not just one, for it to ever be fulfilled. The point I want you to see from this prayer is that God's inexhaustible grace is the basis of our covenant affirmation this morning. We're not this morning taking a deep breath and saying, okay, I'm going to give it my best shot. I'm going to do the best that I can at this. What we're saying is, with a God such as this, there is every hope that at the point when I need forgiveness and strength and wisdom, it will be available to me. When I stumble and I repent and turn back to him, I have every expectation that he will receive me back and strengthen me to continue. And so I'm going to press on with the promises that I have made. And that leads us to the request that the passage contains. It's really the last 
paragraph culminating in the statement that I chose as our text this morning. The, the request, having as its backdrop our sin and God's grace, the request begins in verse 32. But it starts with these words, Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. That's the kind of God we have. That's the kind of God you are, great and mighty and awesome, the one who keeps covenant, who is persistently loving with us. And the prayer that goes on, the request that is made, is set us free to serve and obey you. Now, in the context there, they mean set us free because they were still in bondage to a foreign nation. Yes, the king of that nation had given them freedom to return to their land, to rebuild the temple, but they were still under domination. The land was not theirs as it had promised to them by covenant and they had possessed. But the fact is, they were there by the grace and mercy of God, and they're asking him, free us to serve you. And that's how we come this morning. We don't come because we hope that if we commit ourselves enough to God, he'll love us and accept us. We come joyfully because we know we've been redeemed by grace. And that's why our church covenant that's in your worship folder, because we're going to use it this morning, your church covenant has in the first paragraph these all-important words, In grateful praise for God's redeeming grace, we we solemnly and joyfully enter into our covenant with one another to live and serve in fellowship as Christians in this community. And so what we're doing here is we're we're coming this morning declaring our intention. Uh, We want to be a church that will be the church for each other. We want to be a church that will be the church for those in our lives who are sin, sick, and wounded in this world. We want to be the church for the glory of God. We're not claiming to be the only church. We're not claiming to be a perfect church. We're not claiming to be an unchanging church. We are simply declaring our intention before God and to each other that we want to be the church as God gives us the grace to do that. And that's why we're meeting this morning. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our heavenly Father, as you have called us to yourself, we pray that you would so enable us by your spirit to give ourselves to you in gratitude. You you would allow us as a result to know the reality of your free and lavish grace, your sovereign grace that we will be able to do what we long to do, and that is to live for you freely, without fear. We pray this and give you this time in Jesus' name.